Hello and welcome to the Righteous Remnant podcast. If you'd like to support our ministry or find out more about us, you can do so at therighteousremnant.org. All right, welcome to the Righteous Remnant podcast and Happy New Year. It is 2024. Hope all of you guys had a wonderful New Year with friends and family. Um, I did want to talk a little bit today about, I think, what we can expect this year, because 2024 is an election year, so we can expect that things are going to get crazy. (laughs) Um, You know, our last election year was 2020, and 2020 was a a crazy year for a lot of people, and before that was 2016, and 2016 was crazy. Um, I, I think it's pretty safe to say that for the foreseeable future, Every election year, the the warfare is going to increase, and, and I'm not talking about literal war. I'm talking about spiritual war, but you know when we're talking about the tension and the animosity and everything in the nation, um, it just really ramps up in these election years, right? Especially these presidential election years. And so I think we can expect that there's going to be a lots of attack. There's going to be a lots of attempts to poison us against p- our political opponents, okay? Because that's kind of how the election machine works now. Um, you're not really voting for someone or something. You're really more voting against someone or something. Um, that They found that that tactic is kind of the most effective. So this is my, you know, um, encouragement to the church is, first of all, let's be prepared for the drama that's coming, okay? Let's be prepared for people to get offended with us, for people to get angry with us. Um, I'm just talking about as Americans, right? Like, this is going to happen. But for us as Christians, okay, this is our job this year, okay? This is the assignment. Do not allow your heart to get offended, okay? Do not allow your heart to get offended. This is, I think, the most important thing to keep in mind as we go, as we progress through 2024, all right, um, there's going to be reason for it. Meaning, you're probably going to hear all these terrible things about, you know, the other, right? You're going to hear these terrible things about um, Democrats or Republicans. You're going to, you know, there's going to be all these articles written about how they're so crazy and how they want to do all these evil things, and this is going to happen, right? Um, but as Christians, this is what we have to keep our mind focused on. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, okay? Our battle is not against people, all right? No matter what side of the aisle you're on, your battle is not Joe Biden, and your battle is not against Donald Trump, okay? These are the likely nominees. Um, Our battle is not against either of these people or any other nominee that would take their place, okay? Um, And here's the principle, that we cannot idolize or demonize any person, right? And this is a principle that I've, I've talked about, you know, a number of times on this podcast, and that's that temptation to idolize. If, if we idolize a person, then we will eventually demonize that person. That's how it works. Idolization and demonization are really two sides of the same coin. And what it is, you're giving, you're giving too much credit to a person, okay? Um, I talk about this when I do premarital counseling for couples, Right? You don't want to idolize um, your fiance. You don't want to idolize your boyfriend or your, your girlfriend. All right. And by that, what I mean by that is that you don't want to think, oh my gosh, this is the thing that I need, you know, this person. 
and they're going to complete me. They're going to fulfill all of my desires. I finally found joy because this person is in it. Okay. Now, to be clear, it's okay if your fiance makes you feel that way to a degree, right? Like, that's a good thing. <laughs> you know, being in love is not bad. Um, but it can, what I warn couples of is that it can cross that line into real idolization. And the reason why you, you don't want to idolize people is because what idolizing means is that you're not seeing their, their weaknesses accurately. All right. And the truth is, when you get married, you are going to start seeing your spouse's weaknesses more accurately. Like, that's going to happen. All right. When you're, you know, when you're not living together, you know, um, you don't know about some of their gross habits. Okay. <laughs> you don't know about, you know, some of the, the people, they don't, show all their all their all their bad parts first they show their good parts right um it's only when you get to really know somebody that you become very acquainted with all of their bad parts as well as their good parts okay and the problem is if if you've idolized that person well they're, they're going to fail your idolization right they're not going to be able to live up to that standard and so what happens to a lot of people is in the course of marriage they go from being being super elated to becoming really disillusioned, and then it turns into bitterness and resentment because this person, it's almost like you know they feel ripped off, right? Like they thought they were buying this product and it turned out to be really different, right? And um, that that thing happens in marriage, which is why I warned couples about it in premarital, but it, it happens all over the place, right? I've been talking about this principle um, in, in reference to what's going on at IHOP, um, the International House of Prayer, with Mike Bickle, right? Because Mike Bickle um, was a very celebrated hero, and a lot of people held him in very high esteem. High esteem. I've held him in very high esteem. Um, but what can happen is, you know, uh, when the weaknesses of leaders become apparent, people can get so hurt and so upset and feel so betrayed right? And the reality is a lot of times those weaknesses were there all along. That person is still the same person, okay? Um, and that's why I try and teach this principle that, you know, all people and all leaders have strengths and weaknesses, okay? Um, and so you don't know, like, you know, just because a person is super gifted, um, and that's, you know, generally speaking, one of the ways that they become leaders, right? Like maybe they're a really good speaker or, a really great, you know, executive in terms of like their their business leadership, right? There's lots of skills and, and gifts that can make a person, you know, um, become a well-respected leader. But the truth is those figures also have very strong weaknesses a lot of times, okay? And that can be really hard, especially if you're younger, if you haven't really seen that before, right? That can become really shocking, and um, I think that's, you know, one of the things that's going on at IHOP right now is it is a pretty young community. It's mostly young people that are there at IHOP. So, you know, most of them have not seen that type of thing before, right? And then that's why my warning has been, hey, you know, we, we don't want to idolize or demonize, you know, Mike Bickle or any Christian leaders, okay? The truth is this, that all leaders have, have real weaknesses. And until, you know, we know them really well, um, you know, we can't presume to be able to to judge a leader in their entirety, okay? And in the context in which I'm bringing it up today, we're talking about political leaders. And, you know, the temptation for us on this side is, is uh, you know, 
more so to demonize. Okay, we don't want to demonize any leaders, but I think there's also room to say we don't want to idolize leaders. I don't. I don't know if any anybody's really idolizing Joe Biden at this point. <laughs> his his um, you know, his approvement um, polls are really low right now. Okay, um, but on the other side, there are a good amount of people that at least their language sounds like they're idolizing Trump. Okay. And um, I just want to say, I, I think that's really dangerous. I do not think you should be idolizing Donald Trump. Okay. And, you know, if you've been listening to this podcast, you know that I, I, I spend a decent amount of time defending Trump. <laughs> okay. Um, I do that because, you know, the media attacks him so much that I feel like I have to spend a good amount of time defending him um, to try and counter a lot of that, you know? Um, but I really do try to be clear about Trump's weaknesses, all right? And the way that I've, I've pretty consistently characterized Trump is that I think he is a phenomenal leader for the position he's in right now, okay? Meaning um, Trump is a fighter, so you stick him in a, in a situation where the media is all against him, and he's like one of the few people, I feel like, on the planet that can stay fighting. Like, he just fought them all. And that is amazing. That's an amazing strength, all right? Because, you know, I think, you know, if I was in that situation, I would have been become so um, demoralized and discouraged <laughs> and intimidated, right? Like, but Trump is, is, is pretty remarkable in the sense that he didn't seem like he got really discouraged. He just continued to fight. He, he won't stop fighting. That guy loves to fight. <laughs> okay, so given this situation... Um, I do think he is a phenomenal leader for the situation that we're in. Um, now, that being said, um, one of the things I'm going to talk about in this in this episode is that's kind of where we're going. If I had to guess, 10 years down the line, I don't think that Trump would be a good leader. Okay, and I'm, I'm guessing because, you know, whatever we're trying to tell the future, all of us are guessing to some degree, right? Um but if the nation goes where I think it's going in the next 10 years, um, in fact, I think Trump could be a very dangerous leader to have in power, okay? And, you know, this is this is an important thing to understand about leadership, right? Different leaders thrive in different circumstances, okay? And I've mentioned this before that, you know, we had George Patton as a, as a general in, the, in World War II, and that guy was a phenomenal leader for the season that we were in, which is war, okay? We needed ruthless men to toughen up our troops and send them into war. You know, if you've studied the Civil War, um, you know, George Patton was the kind of leader that, that President Lincoln was looking for because President Lincoln tried to put in a lot of different generals, um, you know, to lead the Union troops, but the problem was they were all intimidated. They were all intimidated and they were all afraid of losing their men. And, um, you know, Eventually, he found Grant, Ulysses S. Grant, who was willing to take advantage of the Union's, you know, primary strength, which was they had way more troops than the South, right, than the Confederacy. And Grant was willing to sacrifice, you know, a lot of men to, to take these objectives. And that was the characteristic that, that Lincoln had been looking for in his generals for a long time, and he, he couldn't find it. So my point is that, you know, leaders like Grant, like Patton, um, they're really necessary in certain circumstances, okay? But generally speaking, those are not the type of leaders that you want leading all the time, right? In, in many other um, historical contexts, they would not be good leaders, okay? And um, 
you know, to be fair to them, um, you know, everyone's unique. So maybe, you know, maybe Grant or Patton could have adapted. I, I don't know. But I hope you understand the, the principle that I'm, I'm talking about. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, I do think Trump is a solid pick right now. Um, but he, I don't think he would be in another historical context. Okay. And understanding these types of nuances are really important because if you idolize Trump, and again, I don't think that's most people, but there is a growing part of the conservative right, you know, that, that tends to idolize him a bit. Um, you know, you, you can absolutely, um, end up in a place where you're demonizing him later on. Right. Like, we have to we have to be clear about his real strengths and his real weaknesses, okay? Um, and this gets into uh, I think w- one of the things I want to get into, which is you know I've I've said consistently that I thought 2020 was the high water mark for kind of all the woke Marxist influence in America. All right, now to be clear, um, the woke Marxist influence is still extremely high, <laughs> okay, in America. The, the you know the the Marxist left from my perspective, really controls the universities, controls most of the traditional media, um, controls large portions of like the tech industry. So they're extremely influential um, and they have a lot of of cultural power, okay? Um, But I do believe they're on the decline, okay? I do believe they're on the decline and we've seen a lot of evidence of this. I think, you know, the ascension of Trump, um, you know, this is back in like 2016, is one of the, you know, the ascension of Trump, and really it's the Tea Party. Um, the Tea Party was kind of the grassroots conservative movement to kind of rein in government spending that was happening in like the 2000s, okay? The Tea Party was, you know, what I saw as the the, the first beginnings of a push back to all the woke stuff. Um, and then it kind of culminated in this figure of Trump who was, a non-establishment figure. He was coming from outside the Republican establishment. And what that really signified was that the conservative base had lost trust in the conservative establishment, right? And there was big battles with like, you know, guys like Paul Ryan, right? And, you know, these these more establishment leaders. And slowly what's happened is they've, most of those guys have been replaced now with, you know, the, the MAGA, <laughs> the MAGA people. And to be clear, there's still a lot of them left there's still a battle going on there between the more establishment republicans and the more mag republicans okay and to be fair there's other factions too but those are kind of the two you know big factions on the right and um what i think we've seen is we've seen um the right really mobilize and push back okay and um this has happened in a, a lot of different ways i think one of the the main victories over the past you know 5 6 years has been the rise of alternative media okay because what happened was the traditional legacy media became really controlled by the marxist left and that was exemplified most clearly by what happened at the new york times the new york times there was really um you know new york times has always been um a liberal a liberal um media newspaper okay um but you know they had always prided themselves on on being objective and what happened was that um the moderate democrats were really driven out of power at the new york times and that happened with the resignation of barry weiss there was a um, an editor that you know ended up getting booted over um the tom cotton um 
op-ed. Tom Cotton was a Republican senator who wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. And um, a number of the employees at the New York Times basically wrote and said, this is unacceptable having this opinion in our in our newspaper. And the more moderate Democrats at the New York Times, because they're really all Democrats, <laughs> okay, were like, no, like we, he's a senator, right? We have to be able to let Republican senators have some type of a voice on our platform. And that got, you know, one of the editors there fired. And that really manifested the sea change that was going on at the New York Times where the younger, progressive, woke, far-left Democrats were driving out all the, the moderates, okay? And um, that was kind of indicative of what was going on all over the media, right? So, you know, that's how CNN essentially became, you know, the 100% democrat you know obviously supporting the democrat left you know and and it was like and it was like all of them okay um and and now what we've seen is th- that um consolidation of power to on the left in media caused the alternative sources of me- media to really rise up and so now we're talking about the really the daily wire this is exemplified by the daily wire right the daily wire is huge now okay and but there's still alternative media Right, and so um, the Joe Rogan podcast, right, podcast in general, these are all alternative sources of media because people turn to these sources of media because they knew they couldn't trust um, these legacy mainstream media sources anymore, right? And so that was probably one of the big ones. Um, I, I would point out that the acquisition of Twitter by Elon Musk, and that was what a year ago or something like that, not very long ago at all. That was um, huge because it broke kind of the stranglehold of the, the, of tech because tech is is strongly controlled by the woke left right because it's based in the bay area right in silicon valley and stuff like that and so um that was huge because what we learned and you know most of us who were following this knew this was happening but what we learned was that there was a systematic attempt to silence conservative voices right all throughout the tech industry and what what really came to light through that acquisition was how much the government and specifically the government's intelligence agencies right the CIA the FBI how involved they were in trying to silence the conservative right okay and that was you know the the twitter files right when Elon Musk acquired twitter they basically shared all those emails that were you know being shared by the government sending you know their the government Agents were sending emails to Twitter telling them to, you know, ban this person, censor this person. And the Twitter employees were essentially saying, okay, yeah, no problem, right? And um, that really revealed how much corruption there was in the government, right? And so for someone like me, um, you know, I care about all this stuff. But I see myself firstly as a pastor, right? I'm, I'm, I'm mostly focused on spiritual things, on the Bible, and things like that. And politics is always something that, you know, touches on that, obviously, but it wasn't my primary area of focus. Um, so for someone like me, seeing that connection made it really clear. And, all, and then I understood why people like Donald Trump were talking about draining the swamp, right? I had always kind of understood what he meant by that right like that he saw there's all this um you know there's all this corruption in in the government and we've got to root out that corruption and i and i got that in a general level um 
but really what what happened in the aftermath of the Twitter files was we we all saw the evidence of it and it became so clear that there were these you know elements in the government and then what happened in Trump's you know first term where essentially everything that he was saying was being leaked to the press <laughs> right like his orders he was constantly being undermined by the government that he was supposed to be in charge of right we just saw that over and over and over again in his first term and um and seeing that you know made it obvious that oh my gosh we do need to drain the swamp like the swamp is out of control it is insane and um and th- a lot of this was because the you know, there was a, a release valve from the control that the left had on media, right? Now you have these alternate sources of media, and now, especially with the with Twitter being unleashed, um, it it a lot of this stuff became really, really obvious, right? So, I see that as one of the great victories of the past, you know, six, five, six years is really how the media um, has been freed in a major way, okay? Um, now that being said, there's still you know a ton of uh, of control by the woke left um, in a lot of our major institutions. Um, most specifically, we're talking about the universities, right? The universities are really the source of all of the corruption. And um, you know what's amazing to me is I've I've been doing a discipleship group on Marxism, and we're going through Christopher Rufo's book um, on you know America's cultural revolution. And um, the main, my main takeaway from that book has been how clear and obvious all this strategy was, right? So um, Herman Marcuse, who was a professor at UCSD, was really the intellectual leader behind a lot of what's happened in the past 20, 30 years, you know, on the left. And he was very explicit that um, the universities had to be the source of the change, right? The revolution was going to happen through the leadership of the universities. And his disciples, they all became college professors. And it's fascinating to me because I I had no idea how explicit, you know, the marching orders were on this stuff. Um, but reading all this stuff has, has been eye-opening to see um, you know, how how the plan came about, right? And Marcuse was very explicit that the working class in America was different than it was in Europe, right? Marxism really arose in a, in a European context where you had, you know, these workers and, you know, it was the Industrial Revolution, so you had the, these workers and, you know, he saw them as being oppressed by the owners. And so the workers were always the heart of the revolutionary force, right? If you were a Marxist, you're always looking at the workers as the, they're the ones being oppressed. They're the ones who can lead the revolution. Um, but Marcuse um, accurately analyzed America and he said, the working class is not a revolutionary force in America, because they're too rich. <laughs> they, have, you know, they have too much money. They have it too good. And so he said, he actually he actually said that the, the working class in America is an anti-revolutionary force. Okay, so if you're a Marxist trying to bring about a communist revolution, you actually have to bypass the working class. And you have to go actually have an, a revolution through the elites, right? And really use the universities. And that's what he targeted. That's what he said. We need to, it needs to be a university driven, um, Marxist revolution. And, and that's exactly what happened, right? So what happened in America is all of these, um, 
you know, university students were indoctrinated in Marxist thought, right? The oppressed oppressor narrative, right? And, you know, the theories of intersectionality, right? And how, you know, you can have multiple lines of oppression and, and critical race theory about how whites have oppressed blacks from the beginning of American history, right? And then queer theory, how, you know, straights have oppressed gays and feminist theory about how men have oppressed women and all these different lines of, of, intersecting oppression and these university students got indoctrinated in it and then they went and were hired in all these different companies and all these various industries and they brought all of um really is marcuse's wife who developed all the dei you know the diversity you know inclusion all of that material was developed by marcuse's wife right and and that got you know dispersed all throughout the you know the marketplace through these types of you know, diversity programs and um, fascinating. And Marcuse predicted that, you know, that was the way it had to be. It had to be an elite-driven Marxist revolution, which was unique because Marxism had always been the workers versus the elites, right? But Marcuse was the one who, who said in America that's not going to work. And what's amazing is that that's exactly what we find today. Right, so Marcuse predicted that there would be an alliance between the college educated and the college professors, and what he called, you know, the ghetto, the black ghettos, right? Because he saw them as they're they're the revolutionary force in America, right? So there would be an alliance between the blacks and the universities, right? And they would essentially be fighting against the the white working class, and those are, those are the lines that we have today when we're talking about Trump's. MAGA base. It is blue-collar white workers. Okay? This is the force for conservatism in America now. Right? They're the anti-revolutionary force in America. And and then you have the university leaders and the, the, the elites who've been trained in the universities. They're allied with, you know, the black underclass, right, in the Democratic Party, and that's their power base. Right? So, Fascinating to me that Marcuse was writing all this in the you know the sixties and seventies. Fascinating to me. Okay, um, my my point in bringing all this up is that you know where I think we are in twenty twenty four is the the right has seriously mobilized against all this stuff now. Okay, there's been serious mobilization. You know, um, in our discipleship class, we we're talking about how did the how did the left seize control of all the universities? You know, one of the things. I talked about was um, that the 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 Marxists were going to the universities with an agenda. They had an agenda to get rid of all the conservative professors, and so uh, they went with a, a wartime mentality. We're going to discredit these conservatives. We're going to kick them out. We're going to force them out by any ways possible. We're going to accuse them of being racist. We're going to accuse them of being sexist. We're going to accuse them you know, of uh, being chauvinists, right? We're going to accuse them of all these things and we're going to get rid of them. And they were largely able to do that, right? Throughout the, the 80s, 90s, um, and the 2000s, they, they cleared out the universities of all of the conservative professors and faculty, right? And they were very specific in hiring, um, you know, um, other progressives and Marxists, right? And um, my point is one side was fighting a war and the other side didn't even realize they were at war. <laughs> okay, and um, that's how it's been for the past. You know, I, I don't, I don't. You know, really before Trump, 
there was a small group of conservatives, relatively small, that understood that they were in a war and they were fighting, fighting, fighting. But really, the the coming of Trump was a sea change where the the war really became far more obvious, right? Um, it, it was obvious when every news channel, when 96% of CNN's coverage of Trump was negative. Okay, that woke a lot of people up. They're like, OMG, how come they can't say anything good about this guy, right? And and what it was is that all that, you know, the the bitterness and the offense that people had towards Trump made the 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 war that they were fighting obvious all of a sudden, right? Places like CNN who at least had feigned ob- objectivity, right? They had a reputation for objectivity, so they were trying to give that impression. They just gave up on that. They didn't even try to appear objective anymore, right? And um, and it that woke a lot of people up, right? And so what's happened is the conservative right has really rallied, you know, in the past decade, and now they're fighting, okay? And we can and we can see it. They're they're fighting back. I said um, in in the media has been a, a huge area in the past, you know, ten years, but now we're starting to see the fight go into many different places. So people like me, right? I'm a pastor. I, I, you know, I, I cared about politics, but kind of tangentially. Um, but I started to recognize, I don't know exactly when this was, um, you know, the past, the past 10, 15 years, I started to see like, oh my gosh, the more people get into progressive politics, the more they tend to reject, you know, biblical Christianity, right? I saw that, um, that link and I didn't understand exactly why, right? So I had to study and learn, and as I study and learn, I, I began to see how many aspects of, you know, progressive thinking were anti-biblical, right? And and that took time. But then I realized, oh, I have to speak into a lot of these seemingly political things because it's not separate from the Bible. Uh, what happens is people believe these things, and then it causes them to question other biblical truths, right? So... I started to wake up to this, you know, I don't know how long ago this was now, you know, 10, 10 years ago, something like that. Um, but I can say now, I would say many, many pastors now have awoken to this, right? And are recognizing that they have to speak out on these things. They have to address these things, okay? Um, I have a clip here from Michael Brown. Michael Brown, um, if you're not familiar with him, he is a Messianic Jewish um, theologian. He has a national radio show. Um, he's he's pretty popular now on YouTube, and he's written a, a million books. Okay, Michael Brown is one of my favorite um, theologians. I agree. I, I I would say, you know, I agree more with his theology than probably any other person that I could think of. Okay, so I I agree with him a lot. But one of the areas where you know there has been disagreement has been you know especially in the past couple years. Um, you know, he's attacked Trump a number of times, um, and not just Trump, but supporters of Trump. And when I saw those attacks, I always just thought to myself, you know, I just don't think he really understands a lot of the Marxism stuff. And to be clear, he's he's smart. Okay, he's got a PhD. He's he's. I'm not saying he's dumb. I'm just saying I just don't think this is an area where he he's really tried to understand what's going on. And um, I was really encouraged. Um, I listened to his live stream yesterday, and um, and this is what he said about 2023. But the revelation of anti-Semitism for some was the, the 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 biggest revelation of 2023. How pervasive it is! I'll, I'll tell you what was the biggest revelation for me. It was the degree to which Marxism 
has really swept through our culture. Now, I, I was aware of this as well on a certain level. I, I was aware of Marxist ideologies coming into our universities, for sure. I, I was aware of how Marxist ideologies could work through, for example, the Black Lives Matter movement. So while we emphatically state that every black life matters, the BLM movement was a corrupt movement. And, and its leaders were openly queer identified or Marxist identified or specifically trained in Marxist thought, etc. So this narrative of the oppressed versus the oppressor and everything goes in those categories. I was aware of it. I even documented it with BLM. Um, I was aware of how it could come through CRT and DEI as those things work themselves out in society. I was aware of all that. But the degree to which it has swept through. And some of this came to light even with the world protests against Israel. It's like, why is everybody on the side of the Palestinians and so against Israel? Why are they siding with Hamas rather than Israel with overt terrorists whose acts of torture and rape and murder are beyond anything I've ever read in my life? The recent accounts we're getting now out of Israel from eyewitnesses and documented and forensic evidence is beyond anything I've read, heard about. How could people side with that? A lot of it comes down to the colonizer, colonized, oppressed, oppressor narrative. And so just reading things, for example, like Christopher Rufo's book, um, America's Cultural Revolution, How the Radical Left Conquered Everything, that put it together a bit more for me to make it more overt. Um, Ted Cruz, Senator Ted Cruz's book, Unwoke. Uh, yeah, the subtitle is How to Defeat Cultural Marxism in America. One chapter title is Mr. Marx Goes to Washington. So whether you like Senator Cruz's politics or personality or not, a lot of really good information in, in that book. That was also 2023. A book came out in December of 2022, then only found out about in 2023, uh, by James Lindsay, The Marxification of Education. Uh, Paulo Freire's critical Marxism and the theft of education, even the degree to which larger Marxist philosophies have worked their way into our schools and into education. So bottom line, friends, bottom line, this was kind of a, an awakening for me. I knew it, but now I knew it on a different level. Okay, so there's Michael Brown talking about how in 2023, the biggest thing, the biggest awakening he had was he realized how much Marxism was to blame for all these things that, that he finds himself opposing, right? Like, he just didn't see the link to Marxism so clearly. Like, 2023 really, you know, made it clear for him. And that's really encouraging for me because, you know, Michael Brown's one of those people that you could tell he's not primarily a political person. He's primarily a biblical person, right? He cares mostly about the Bible and the church. And then he'll talk about some political things insofar as they touch on his understanding of the Bible, right? Um, but he's waiting to be like, wait a second, like it, Marxism is really important, right? And it's it really at the root of so much of the stuff. So that's super encouraging for me to see leaders like him really begin to wake up and get it because these are the leaders that we need to be speaking into this kind of stuff. And this has been a bad problem with a lot of these national Christian leaders. You know, guys like, um, um, what's that guy's name? <laughs> Tim Keller. There we go. Yeah, Tim Keller. Um, 
Tim Keller, um, I've recommended his books to a number of people. I've done Bible studies on, not Bible studies, book studies on some of his books before with my church groups. Okay, so I, I respect Tim Keller. And I know I have a lot of friends that just love the guy, that are respect him so much, okay? So he's very, he was very influential. Um, but he said a number of things over the years that um, really made me go, you don't understand this Marxist thing at all. <laughs> like that's how we felt about him, right? And um, you know, it's it's like that a lot. Uh, there's a lot of leaders that have phenomenal stuff. Like just their their biblical teaching is so good, and I would agree with them in so many different ways. And um, but the problem is they're totally missing it on whenever it touched on on the Marxist stuff, and it's simply because they didn't understand how modern Marxism. Um, opposed the Bible and the threat that it posed to biblical Christianity, right? And so, you know, you had guys like um, um, MacArthur, John MacArthur, who, you know, I, I have strong disagreements with um, when it comes to, like, you know, charismatic theology and stuff like that and the way that he attacks, like, basically every charismatic. Um, but MacArthur... Um, was on it with a lot of the stuff. You know, he really started speaking out against social justice, um, and because he understood how that that term had a, a, a Marxist orientations to it, right? And um, and so there were leaders that started to rise and start speaking out, but the vast majority of Christian leaders have not spoken into this well, and because of that, the church has been so divided on a lot of the stuff. Okay, so. For me as a pastor, I'm super encouraged to see more and more leaders really starting to get it on this because this is the battle that we're in, okay? This is the battle that we are in. We have to fight this battle, and it's an uphill battle because um, all of our children are going to universities now, and they're all being trained in Marxism, but they don't realize that it's Marxism, okay? And... Um, and it's the reason, it's, it's not a coincidence that half of the Christians that go to college lose their faith. That is not coincidence, okay? That is, that's a demonic strategy and plan that is working, all right? And so we as a church need to understand this battle and find it, and obviously if you've been listening to the podcast, you know that, you know how strongly I feel about all that, okay? Um, I will say that there have there has been, you know, a really encouraging development. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, um, but three university presidents from Harvard, UPenn, and MIT went before Congress, testified that, um, you know, calling for the genocide of Jews did not necessarily violate their campus policies. This got them in hot water. Um, the president of UPenn, I believe, resigned or was fired. I can't remember which one, but she's gone. And then uh, the president of Harvard was under fire for several weeks. And what happened was she was under fire for that interview. Um, and then Christopher Rufo released information charging her with plagiarism. Okay. And, and um, the evidence for her plagiarism kept growing. People kept, add, kept adding to it. The New York Times um, and very left-leaning newspapers ran op-eds calling for her resignation, which is amazing, right? Um, but you know what I think really happened was the 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 Jews happened, right? The, the Jews are eighty percent Democrat, okay? Eighty percent of Jews are Democrats, okay? They're very influential in the Democratic Party, and. Um, but what happened with the October seventh attack, the, the Hamas attack against you know the it, against Israel, is it deeply split the Democratic Party? Because what happened is all the older Democrats 
are are pro-Israel, and all the younger Democrats are pro-Hamas. And what happened is the Jews realized, OMG, there's something seriously wrong here. And so, you know, it was prominent Jews said that they're stopping their donations to Harvard, right? Influential Jews decided to push back. And that's, that, that is really important. And my, my point is that um, the president of Harvard just recently resigned. And that's a big deal, okay? Because we are now threatening the core of the Marxist left's power, power center, okay? That's a big deal for the, the president of Harvard to be fired, okay? A black woman. It's a huge deal. Um, and I think it's the first, you know, one of the first major victories that we're seeing where the right is going to, is counterattacking into the universities, which is, like I said, the power center of the woke left. Um, we'll see. Okay, we'll see over the coming years. Um, but my point in bringing all this up is I do feel like we're in the middle of a great pushback against the woke left. And the danger is we don't know where this is going to go. Okay, we don't know where this is going to go. Um, Rick Joyner, years ago, we're talking in the 1980s, all right, prophesied that America would go far to the left. And to clarify, I think he he mentioned that Bob Jones had this word, um, but I think it's something both he and Bob Jones saw. But uh, forgive me, my memory's a little fuzzy. But I remember he said this. Back in the 80s, he said that America, he saw America going really far to the political left and that there would be a great backlash and it would push it really far to the political right. Okay, um, Everything that I've seen so far, you know, since then, we're talking, that, that word is over 40 years old. Okay, um, Everything I've seen so far uh, testifies that that word will likely come to pass. Okay? We did go crazy far to the political left, and we're still mostly over there right now, okay? But there is a backlash coming, okay? There is a backlash coming, and that's because up until now, um, whites in America truly repented of racism. There was a true, genuine, heartfelt repentance for racism. And what happened is the Marxist left really grabbed hold of that and exploited it. And that's how this thing got into for so many people. Because they said, it's your racism that's caused, you know, black people to suffer. And so many white people, they believe that, right? And they went, yeah, it's our fault, right? How can we fix this? How can we make this up? And that type of race shaming um, was really at the center of, of, of a lot of the left's push leftward in America. And, you know, now what's happening is a lot of people are, are, are waking up to the fact that a lot of that is, is, lie, is a lie. Okay, a lot of that is a lie. All right, the truth is this, that, you know, the average black person is far more racist than the average white person in America. Okay, we're just talking, we're just talking averages here. All right. Um, but this is the problem with Marxism is it justifies evil um, through stuff. It's, you know, the way it does it in this case, is it says that black people can't be racist because they don't have quote-unquote, they don't have, quote, power, right? They redefine racism, right? Racism is now prejudice plus power. So if you don't have power, then you can't be racist. And that's the argument that many people on the left use to say that black people cannot be racist. It's impossible. But they are, okay? Many black people are racist, okay? And unfortunately, many people in general are racist. 
what's allowed that to, to, to thrive in America is the fact that most white people are not racist, okay? But the danger in all of this is as we start to backlash, okay, as the nation starts to swing again to the right, okay, there's a real danger that, um, that white people specifically will start becoming really racist again, okay? That's a huge danger. America is a white dominant country, right? It's something that I'm worried about. And and to be clear, it's not just an issue of white racism, although I think that is a, a, a serious danger going forward, okay? Um, it's, it's an issue of people becoming embittered, all right? When you become embittered, there's a number of ways the enemy can push you. He can push you into a number of different forms of bitterness and bigotry, okay? Right now, the the... the the biggest bigotry in America is anti-Christian bigotry, okay? It is insane anti-Christian bigotry, how much it's it's embraced in America today, okay? If you go on, you know, if you go on social media or Reddit, all, that's all you see is anti-Christian bigotry, right? It's okay to, you know, to disparage Christianity and all this kind of stuff because, again, the paradigm has been that Christians have been oppressors and they're in power and they're so powerful, you know, so you can, you can, you can, criticize the powerful that's actually a good thing right that's the mentality and and that mentality is used to justify so much of this type of bigotry okay the the point is bitterness pushes you into these types of bigotry (coughs) and we're in the middle of a great swing i think back to the conservative side um and the danger is we can become really bigoted okay in a more traditional kind of way. And there's a real danger to that, all right? There's a real danger to that. And so this is my encouragement for all believers. We have to model biblical love. We have to model biblical love, okay? The the Lord wants to do things and the enemy always wants to to pervert it, okay? The Lord raised up a, a freedom movement for the black community, all right? That was that was the Lord doing that through Martin Luther King Jr. Okay, there was a, a godly anointing on him. All right, and not just on him, but on many many of the leaders. Right, that were part of that movement. And then there was a demonic counterfeit, which was the Black Power movement. Okay, and Martin Luther King's, King Jr.'s movement accomplished what it was called to do, but the Black Power movement kept pushing in a way that took it to really bad extremes. And today, um, that movement is still at work, is so powerful, okay? I believe that a lot of what God is doing today um, in pushing back against the Marxist stuff, I believe it's it's godly, all right? But the, do not be deceived. The, the enemy will try to hijack it, okay? The enemy for, always tries to counterfeit and hijack the moves of God, all right? And he does that through bitterness, Okay, it is imperative that as believers that we are encouraging others to forgive. Okay, to forgive. It's very important. It doesn't mean don't hold people to account. Accountability is important. You can forgive somebody and hold them to account. All right. I'm not saying forgive in the sense of that there should be no repercussions for anyone who's done something evil. Okay. No, there should be repercussions. But you can't allow bitterness to drive it. Okay. If you allow bitterness to drive it, you usually drive those repercussions into very evil places. 
okay? And um, this is really important, and it's important that we as believers keep our hearts clean, all right? And I think that that's a huge part of what this whole season is about, right? Learning to rise above the vitriol, right? And this is why in 2024, there's going to be people absolutely hating Trump. There are going to be people absolutely hating Biden, absolutely hating X. You can stick stick whoever you want, whatever political enemy you want there. It's imperative Christians do not buy into any of that, okay? Speak the truth, but speak it in love. Speak the truth, but speak it in love. Refuse to idolize or to demonize any other person in America. Okay, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers that wage war in heavenly places, okay? People are not our enemy, all right? The demonic powers are our enemies, and they manipulate and control and use people so it's understandable that we can be tempted to become embittered towards the people that wrong us. All right? But this is what the scriptures are calling us to do. Forgive people. Forgive them. All right? Don't hold bitterness against them. In fact, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Okay? Keep your heart clean. All right? It's going to be so important. All right? And so much of the season is... Uh, growing in maturity, when people attack you, when people slander you, belittle you, demean you, right, that you learn to love them, okay, that you learn to love them. It's not easy. It's freaking hard. <laughs> it's really hard, all right? But this is this is what maturity is, okay? Maturity is being able to be crucified by your enemies and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, all right? That is the ultimate picture of maturity, that we saw on the cross with Jesus, all right? And Jesus is in, has the agenda to train up leaders in the church that have that same type of character, okay? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, all right? This is the heart that we're called to have, and, um, and because there is a danger, all right? If believers aren't going to rise up, right, then the, the power vacuum will be filled by others, all right? I really believe the church can can rise into the positions of leadership and authority, or the church can abdicate that and others could fill those those spots, okay? And, I, you know, I've, I've said this. I, I do believe that the Lord wanted to raise up many, you know, Christian voices in this season, but I, I think many Christians were not able to speak into a lot of these things, right? And so, you know, I, I think the Lord used Donald Trump, and he used Ben Shapiro, and he used Jordan Peterson, and he used Dennis Prager, and he used, you know, a lot of these other people um, because they were able to do the job better than Christians, okay? And and to be clear, um, he's using lots of Christians. I'm not trying to say that he's not using any Christians, okay? Um, and I think a lot of these people have done really phenomenal jobs, okay? Um, but it... But I'm saying this, like, I think there needs to be humility that as a church, we we really missed something, all right? And I don't know what the, the long-term fruit of that is going to be, okay? But I think we really missed something there, right? And I say that because um, our seminaries, the places where we're training leaders, are not training them in any of the appropriate, any of the things that they really need to know to be able to speak into these things. Right, and again, I'm I'm not meaning to just completely trash the seminaries. Okay, they're doing good work also, but there's some real weaknesses 
in the church that kept us from really being able to play the role of leadership that I think we were supposed to play in this past, you know, in this past decade or two decades, right? Um, and to be fair, there there are many Christians that that have been amazing. I don't want to, you know, I don't I don't want to demean the entire church, okay? And as a whole, the church has been the backbone of everything that's good that's been happening in America, okay? So I'm I'm hear me, I'm not trying to say the church sucks. The church is amazing, okay? Um, but from my perspective, we're coming into we're coming into really difficult times, right? Um, and you know, this isn't me prophesying. I'm not. I'm not necessarily saying the Lord told me you know, to say this, or that. But I just think you know the church has to understand that um, birth pangs are part of the end time paradigm, right? That World War Two was the type of birth pang, but the scripture tells us that the next birth pang is going to be more severe and more difficult, right? Until the new creation comes. The new creation is the baby, right? So as we approach the end of the age, the birth pangs are going to get more and more difficult, harder, okay? And we need a church that has that expectation so they understand the purpose of the difficulty, okay? And that's a huge part of, you know, what this podcast is about, like trying to give us understanding so that we can do what's right in difficult times, right? Um, okay, with that, I'll just finish up with this, that saying that, you know, 2024, I, I'm hopeful, is going to be a year of breakthrough. I've already said I think it's going to be a year of fighting, <laughs> okay? Hopefully not for the believers, but, you know, in, in America, there's going to be a lot of fighting, okay? Um, but I am hopeful that 2024 is going to be a, re- a year of real breakthrough. I believe there's been a real process of pruning. You know, 2020 was such a year of pruning, Okay, such a year of testing. And, you know, the the following years, to me, there's been a lot of testing still in the church um, for a lot of people. And, um, you know, I'm speaking corporately, so this doesn't necessarily speak to every single person. But I do believe and hope that there is going to be real great breakthrough in 2024. Now, we're going to see. Um, but the general rule of thumb is that, you know, when we go through difficulty, um, the difficulty is for a purpose. Right, there's a purpose in all the hardship, and you know the principle is that you know sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Right, that when you have a baby, the 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 birth pangs are painful and hard, but the the hardship and the grief is washed away. Right, when the baby comes because of the the great blessing that has arrived. And so I think that that is a biblical principle. I don't know if we're going to have the fullness of that blessing, but I do believe that there's going to be significant breakthrough here in 2024. All right. Um, as I prayed and asked the Lord, um, you know, what do we have to focus on in 2024? Um, I felt like he spoke to me in Matthew 7, all right, verses 1 um, through 5. It says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. From the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take a, take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Okay, um, I think there's a, a real call in the season to be careful with our judgment, to be careful with our judgment um, because the way that we judge in this season, um, that will be the judgment that is used against us, all right? That's a principle that is true and that's right, okay? If we're very merciful 
to others, then we will receive mercy at the time when we need it. <laughs> okay? All of us have ups and downs. Okay? All of us have ups and downs. And um, we need to be merciful towards those who are in their downs. All right? And that's why I've been speaking into this Mike Bickle situation, you know, repeatedly. I, I want to warn people, be merciful here. Be merciful here. Okay? It's not that, you know, if, if, if Mike and others at IHOP sinned, they should face repercussions for their sin. Okay? Absolutely. Okay? But you want to be careful it doesn't enter into bitterness, that it doesn't enter into, you know, anything beyond um, what is right. And as, as, as humans, we need to have humility that we don't know the whole story. Okay, we don't know the whole story with people. We don't know how difficult it is, you know, to handle that type of authority, that type of influence. Very difficult. So, be merciful. Okay, we must be merciful, um, and then allow the Lord to examine us. Right? It. All of us can see faults in one another. Okay, all of us can see faults in one another. All right. The question is, can we see the plank in our own eye? All right. Can we see the plank? This is why it's so important that the Lord brings us through times of humility. All right. In, in seasons in the wilderness, what happens is we are able to see our own planks more clearly. We have to go through those times. Okay. We have to have times where we're being humbled and when we're embracing the process of going deeper in humility. All right. And the depth depth of humility um, is told by how entitled we feel and how able we are to love others, right? Like, that, a, a humble man cannot be offended, right? A perfectly humble man cannot be offended, right? Because offense affects our pride. It takes advantage of our pride. If we have no pride, then we cannot be offended, right? And that's the question, Right? Can we go? Th- can we be demeaned? Can we be slandered? Can we be wronged and yet stay unoffended? Right? And keep our hearts in places of love and and even respect and honor for those who have wronged us. That's really hard. <laughs> right? Like when you get wronged by people, all you see is their weaknesses. The question is, can God bring your character to a place where people can wrong you and you can still see their strengths so clearly that you have great respect for them? Right? That is hard, okay? But I do believe that's part of the call here when we're talking about all of these leaders, Christian leaders who are falling right now, okay? And, and again, I've, I've tried to be really clear. I have no idea what Mike Bickle did or didn't. I'm still waiting for all the results of this investigation, okay? We're, we're going to hopefully know a bit more then, all right? But, but this isn't just about Mike Bickle. Um, all these things are indicative of the state of leadership in the church, all right? Okay, we have to be careful about throwing leaders under the bus. Um, because if, if there's so many leaders that have these problems, you know, where are the righteous ones? Where are the righteous ones? Why is it that the Lord can't put anybody in, in, a, in, a, in a position of authority and influence and and not have a major scandal, okay? And to be clear, I know that there are many leaders that have major scandals, but my point is that the regularity with which we're seeing this, these scandals are indicative of the state of the church, okay? It's not that the Lord want, you know, or people want to follow flawed leaders, and, you know, <laughs> that's not what it is. You know, I, I, I do think people underestimate, they don't realize how difficult it is to remain faithful when the more influence you have, the more money you have, the more power you have, 
the more opportunity you have for sin. Okay, you know, if we don't know what it's like when you have, you know, girls throwing themselves at you, <laughs> you know, I don't know what that's like. <laughs> okay, like the level of temptation, you know, in some of those places, um, it is more than I think most of us could handle. All right, and we have to have some humility about that when we, you know, criticize leaders who who fall to these things. Okay, my point is this. Um, let's focus on becoming the leaders that the Lord would be able to entrust with that kind of authority, that kind of influence, um, and it would not be able it would not be able to corrupt our hearts. I want to be that kind of leader, right? I want to be a leader that God could put in any situation. If He wants me to be able, like to to handle a multi million dollar budget and influence over millions of people, that I'd be able to do that and do it faithfully and, and not give in to any of the major temptations. Or if he wants me to be a leader who has no influence, right? Well, I guess you're not really a leader then, right? To be a servant, okay, who has no influence and, and no money, right? Um, and, and, and still be faithful in that place. Let me tell you, both of those things are hard, okay? <laughs> okay, I've, I've had seasons where I've had re- relatively for myself, had a, a influence, and I've been at seasons where I've had relatively no influence. Both of those extremes are difficult. <laughs> okay, they're both hard. And my ambition has been, God, I, I want I want to delight myself in you, that you are my prize in both of those types of seasons. Whether I have much or whether I have little, or whether I'm in the middle. <laughs> and most of the time, right, we're in the middle. Um, I want to be able to delight myself in you and have you be my portion, right? Uh, it, but it becomes more difficult the farther to either extreme we get, okay? Like, it's hard. If you, you know, if you're like Joseph and you go to prison and, you know, you're wrongly accused and all this kind of stuff, it's hard to worship God in that place and delight and, and be filled with joy and faith. That's hard because you feel, like, bitter, right? <laughs> and then conversely, you know, when Joseph becomes prince, you know, prime minister of, of Egypt, I feel like that's even harder, right, to handle that level of of influence and not you know if I was Joseph I'd probably like okay now's the time I'm gonna get Potiphar <laughs> right I'm gonna I'm gonna give him what that guy, that guy deserves I'm gonna get his wife I'm gonna see how his wife enjoys being in jail <laughs> right? like, you can indulge all of your you know you know secret desires for vengeance right you can you know all the women are throwing themselves at you right you could spend you know money on whatever you want right like who of us can handle that level of temptation. Not well. Come on. Let's be honest, right? And that's that's what I think, you know, when we're talking about Matthew 7, the do not be judged. Do, do not judge lest you be judged, right? That's why we want to be merciful to others. Okay, we want to be gracious and trust the Lord with judgment. He is the perfect judge. All of us are imperfect judges, okay? So for me, I'm determined that I'm going to love all of all people, but especially all believers. I'm going to show great honor for all believers, okay, while trying to discern if there are truly, um, you know, sheep, false, or excuse me, wolves in sheep's clothing, like false believers that are leading people straight, we have to be able to discern that also, right, and speak clearly about those people, okay, it's very difficult putting everyone in, those, in the right position, but I believe that this is something that's so important, um, that we learn how to do. How do we discern rightly that we show give mercy to believers who are genuinely and sincerely trying to follow him, even though they're going to be immature in some ways, okay? All of them, even leaders, right? Um, and yet we still have to make a distinction between those that belong to the Lord and those that do not 
that are, you know, like the Pharisees. They're whitewashed tombs. They look clean on the outside, but inside they're full of, of dead men's bones, right? The way Jesus put it. And we're speaking clearly about these people and identifying them so that people are not led astray, right? Very difficult to get that right, okay? But I do believe that is one of the most important things that leaders in the body of Christ can be doing in this next generation. And by the way, you don't need to be a pastor to be a leader. I think that's one of the things that we're seeing so much right now, okay? Pastors are not called to be the only leaders in the body of Christ, okay? Pastors have a certain measure of authority for certain things within the body, okay? But we desperately need leaders in the body of Christ that are not elders in the church, okay? They're called to exercise their authority outside of the church, but many of those leaders will be more glorified in the age to come, are more important to the body of Christ, their ministry is more important to the body of Christ, okay? To be clear, we all have high callings, but I'm saying that some you know, who are functioning in advanced degrees of their callings are going to be very fruitful outside of the church primarily, okay? And as, as, the, as the church, we have to recognize the importance of those leaders operating in their authority and in their gifts where they're at, all right? Um, okay, these are all the things um, for 2024, and this is my prayer for the body of Christ, that we would grow this year, that we'd grow in our peace, that we'd grow in our love for the Lord, that we'd grow in our discernment and in our wisdom. I believe that it is happening, okay? I believe that it's happening, and, um, and I'm hopeful that this year really is going to be a year of great breakthrough in the body of Christ. Let's pray for all the political you know, nominees. Um, to close out, I'm not, I'm not sure who I'm voting for yet. I'm, you know, if I had to vote for a day, I'd probably vote for Trump. Um, but I really do like DeSantis, and I really do like Vivek Ramaswamy. Um, I like those two. Um, but I'm still thinking and praying about it. I'm sure everybody is, is thinking and praying right now about who to vote for. And um, I just think, man, let's just continue to pray for all of these um, men and women that the Lord might want to raise up. Let's pray that um, we'd have wisdom to identify um, a wise pick and that the Lord's will would be done in America. Let's pray for the the prayer movement. Okay, the prayer movement is under serious attack with all the stuff going on at IHOP right now. Okay, let's pray that the momentum on the prayer movement would not be hindered with all this stuff, okay? That is clearly one of the enemy's goals in all this, to hinder the prayer movement, right? To cast um, doubt on all of it. But let me just say, look, you don't have to pray like IHOP, okay? You can pray in a totally different way than IHOP. That doesn't matter. The important thing is that we pray, (laughs) okay? The important thing is that we pray. And that's really the heart of what IHOP was calling everybody to do, all right? Was to um, have a, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the really the, the, power of the church is in our culture of prayer. And that's something that I've celebrated in the Korean church. Um, But, you know, I've been praying this for many years now, that our generation of the Korean church would receive a double portion of our parents' anointing, right? Our parents all did morning prayer, and morning prayer is now dying, right? Man, I'm praying that, that my generation would be able to do night and day prayer, a double portion anointing, okay? And it doesn't have to look exactly the same. Um, but the point is that whatever whatever prayer influence was going up to heaven, I pray that it would be twice as much um, from my generation. Okay. All right. God bless you guys. I pray that 2024 would be a blessed year of breakthrough for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.